This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University. Congress approved $390 million to construct a national security multi-mission vessel at Texas A&M University's Galveston campus. The ship will serve as a state-of-the-art classroom as well as provide disaster response along the Gulf Coast. Search Maritime Academy at tamu.edu. And the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority. The Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for January 20th, 2021, Inauguration Day. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. This week, we are joined by Justice and Politics reporter Emma Platoff. Hey there. Politics reporter Alex Samuels. Howdy. And reporter Karen Brooks-Harper. Hi there. Thank you all for joining us. So today we're recording a little bit late because we all wanted to watch the inauguration, President Joe Biden being sworn in as the 46th president, as you all know, um, saying that his, in, his, in his inaugural address, democracy has prevailed. Uh, Texas's two senators, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, were in attendance. We had a lot of members from the uh, Texas delegation in Congress there as well. And as far as inaugurations go, a fairly uneventful one in terms of you know, at least what people might have been expecting, no security threats at the Capitol or in the Austin Capitol or anything like that. Emma, you watched the event. What stood out to you from the day's proceedings? I think what stood out to me and to the most of the uh, cable news pundits I was hearing from is just how normal it felt. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance on a day like today, and everything went really smoothly. It was this really striking image to look at you know, people in suits and ties and, and troops guarding the Capitol, where we know just two weeks ago there was an attack. Um, Biden said a lot of what you would expect. You know, people were joking, okay, how many times did we hear the word unity? Democracy has prevailed, was a big takeaway line. He said, we must end this uncivil war. So really just a, a serious and direct and short uh, for Joe Biden kind of acknowledgement of where we are as a country and the challenges he'll face as president. Yeah, when he was speaking, it, it kind of struck me. You see the, the people in the masks, obviously not a lot of people on the mall um, due to both security and coronavirus concerns. And it hit home kind of simultaneous to me, simultaneously to me how, A, how difficult of a situation he has found himself in, obviously, as, as many people have commented upon, you know, in the middle of a pandemic um, and, a very divided country and things like that. But then on the other hand, how kind of easily that set up his inauguration speech, because you did hear the things about unity. You did hear a lot of the things that you hear at most inaugurations, but we've just ended these four years of a president who doesn't do things like most presidents do. And so it, a lot of that did kind of feel new or different this time around. <laughs> Alex, what did what have you been seeing from the the Texas folks around this? How is how has the reaction been so far? Uh, it's been pretty varied. We had, you know, for example, freshman Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne, who just took over Kenny Marchant's seat in the twenty fourth district. I think her and 
a dozen other House GOP freshmen penned a letter to the Biden administration, really pledging to work across the aisle. Um, and she, of course, sent that in before Biden was formally sworn in. And then after Biden was sworn in, we had statements ranging from, you know, people commenting on just the peaceful transition of power to some saying, you know, particularly Republicans in Texas saying, you know, this was great, but, you know, we are still going to fight to make sure, you know, the, you know, Biden doesn't take any, quote, radical policies. I think it was uh, Tony Gonzalez who commented uh, that he was excited to work with the new administration, but he said in a tweet that he would be standing up against uh, Biden's policies that, quote, send our nation in the wrong direction. So I think overall, um, the reaction was kind of what we've been hearing from Republicans up until now, just that, you know, they were they had accepted Trump's loss finally and they were ready to move on with the new administration. I guess it just remains to be seen what that looks like. Sure. You kind of quickly saw the transition of people, you know, whether it was casting doubt on Trump's defeat or or not you know, maybe not casting doubt, but not acknowledging that there's going to be a new president or and now there is a new president to very quickly, we see the the kind of traditional other party, you know, opposition and and, and some focus really today on, on some of the policies that, that Biden has talked about enacting, whether it's executive orders related to immigration or the Keystone pipeline or or various other things that, that are coming up. Um, Alex, I want to ask you because you had a story with uh, Patrick Spitek uh, this week about the the position that the Republican Party finds itself in now. You know, this this is a party that has been very devoted to Trump for the past four years, and now has to kind of evaluate where it goes from here. What have what have you what impressions did you come away with in reporting out that story about where we're headed in the Texas GOP? Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways is that the Republican Party is sort of at a crossroads now. As you said, the past four years, um, Republicans in Texas at large really embraced and enabled Trump, of course, to varying degrees. Whether you look at, you know, someone like Sid Miller, who was Trump's man in, in Texas, I think that was the phrase they used for him, to someone like Cornyn, who, you know, stood by Trump through four, his four years, but didn't always comment on some of the more uh, controversial moments of Trump's presidency. So I think right now the party is just deciding where it goes post-Trump. Um, you know, you had people like Dan Patrick who said on Fox News earlier that, you know, the Republican Party is built around Donald Trump. And Patrick was predicting that in 2024, whoever decides to run in the Republican primary should be, um, you know, kind of taking lessons from Trump and Trump's policies. And if Republicans don't do that, then he predicted maybe they won't make it through a primary. Um, and then you have other Republicans like Jerry Patterson, who have, you know, for the past four years been pretty vocal about their dis uh, disapproval with Trump, saying that it's time for the party to move on. So I think right now the party is just at a stage of deciding who it wants to be. Um, of course, you know, looking toward uh, elections in 2022 and 2024. Well, and, and there, when you talk about the party, you mean, you know, kind of the people in the party, um, because we actually saw from the state GOP party, the actual formal apparatus, an indication of which direction they wanted to go. I'll read you a quick, the end of their statement that they released right around inauguration time. Um, this is unsigned from the Texas GOP. Quote, it took a global pandemic, a thoroughly corrupt media, and massive election irregularities for President Trump to be removed from office. However, 
What he started will not end today. America first is not going away. We will not surrender this nation to the false song of globalism and progressive socialism. You know, a uh, uh, mandatory fact check here. There were not massive election irregularities that allowed Trump to win. But uh, setting aside that, uh, you know, non-factual statement, I think we also got an indication of at least what direction the leader of the Texas GOP, Alan West, wants to take this. Um, I mean, is it fair to say, Alex, that uh, there will be forces kind of trying to kind of keep the Trumpism in the GOP moving forward? I think that's definitely fair. Um, and like you mentioned, Alan West, you know, since he's taken over the helm of the state GOP, he's really taken the party in a more adamantly pro-Trump direction. Um, of course, you know, again, we have Dan Patrick saying that he thinks Trump will be an influence in the 2024 primary. So I think there are definitely some folks in the parties who want to keep just those pro-Trump ideals front and center. So then the other side of this is what happens with kind of the state and things like that under an Biden administration. And Emma, you've written a little about this lately. I mean, one thing it seems like we can expect pretty quickly is some lawsuits coming from the state of Texas, right? Yeah, we've been talking about how Texas Republicans are reacting to the inauguration. I'm just going to read part of a tweet from Attorney General Ken Paxton. He starts by congratulating President Biden, you know, wishing the country the best on Inauguration Day. And then this was sent earlier this afternoon before Biden has really had a chance to do anything. Paxton says, I promise my fellow Texans and Americans that I will fight against the many unconstitutional and illegal actions that the new administration will take. Uh, there's a little bit more, but he ends, Texas first, law and order always. So it gives you uh, a a not so subtle hint as to how Republicans in Texas are opposing this administration. You know, Paxton holds the office, you know, that that previously was held by now Governor Greg Abbott. When he was in that office as Texas, Texas Attorney General under Barack Obama, he really pioneered this red state strategy of suing the federal government dozens and dozens of times during Obama's tenure, challenging everything from immigration executive orders to environmental rulemaking, um, trying to block policies in court when they didn't have, as a, as a party, the clout to do it in Congress. That has changed in the last four years, right? Because instead of an adversary in the White House, Texas have had, Texas leaders have had, you know, their best ally in years. Paxton, Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick have found themselves aligned with the Trump administration more often than not, certainly. Um, But now we go back to this adversarial relationship. You know, Texas is the biggest red state. It has the biggest attorney general's office of any red state. And um, as I think we can see from the rhetoric we're hearing so far from state leaders, they they plan to wield that power um, to push back on the Biden administration. Yeah, and I do wonder whether some of this will have somewhat of a unifying effect. You know, I mean, I, I guess there hasn't been, there isn't this huge you know, break in the Texas GOP right now, but it is just kind of always easier to be the opposition than it is to be, uh, you know, in, in power when you, when you lose, you lose some of that squabbling uh, going on. I mean, you know, the other thing that you mentioned in that story are some, were some comments, you know, from, from Greg Abbott, some other kind of policy proposals that might've been thrown out, uh, you know, the, the kind of, uh, uh, don't mess with Texas policies, if you will, that, that, that could come um, under a Biden presidency as well. 
Yeah, Abbott is talking about um, whether he might need to take steps to make Texas a, quote, Second Amendment sanctuary. We're not really sure what that means, but that's something he's floating. Um, immigration and border security is always something that comes up, right, from Texas Republicans, especially with the Democrat in the White House. Texas has been spending for years now $800 million every two years to secure the border with Mexico. And um, there's been no suggestion that that money can be saved under a Biden administration. I think it was Dan Patrick in a radio interview last week said, in fact, he wonders whether Texas may need to double down and do even more under a Democrat. So I think those are some issues to watch, kind of the, the typical issues that you might expect to divide a Texas Republican from someone like Joe Biden, immigration. Um, I would also be keeping an eye on things like the EPA environmental regulations are sort of always ripe to be challenged in lawsuits. I think that we can expect that to happen relatively quickly. Um, and, and certainly there's an appetite for it in Texas. Sure. And we should note, you know, uh, Biden has already taken action on some of these things, talking about issuing protections for DACA recipients, um, uh, pressing pause on border wall construction. Uh, he, he, you know, present has this plan that he's already talking about, about comprehensive immigration reform. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Emma, some um, environmental stuff, the uh, uh, rejoining the Paris Accords and things like that. One thing, Karen, I wanted to ask you is you've been tracking the state's coronavirus response. Obviously mm -hmm. now we have a new leader at the federal level for that. Mm -hmm. Do you see any changes in what this means for Texas in the short term in, in that regard? Well, it's it, yes and, and no. The short term is hard to define because it seems it can be we can in, in coronavirus terms that can be <laughs> a matter of hours or a week can seem like a long you know. But <clears throat> um, one of the things we can see that they have that that, that Biden administration has, has promised and uh, and he's put um, one of Obama's uh, you know system specialists at the helm of this um, of this effort. Uh, is to put the full weight of the federal government resources um, behind the manufacturing effort. Um, so, you know, the real kind of wartime manufacturing type of uh, approach um, to where the federal government can start really cranking out what these companies need to build to, to, to make more vaccine, to distribute it. Um, and then they're also talking about, um, you know, <clears throat> managing from a national level, the distribution uh, overall, sending reinforcements um, to these just incredibly overworked and overstressed state and, pub and local public health agencies that have been managing this rollout all by themselves. Now, what that's going to look like specifically, you know, we're, we're still trying to, you know, get the details on some of that stuff. But what he has released and what he briefed reporters about over the weekend was a, a general plan that by a lot, by most counts, seemed like kind of a lot of obvious answers, but that hadn't been done yet. So he's covering ground that a lot of people thought we should be at by now. Um, but what that includes for Texas would be, um, you know, faster supply, bigger supply, um, you know, and those are changes we could end up seeing within a matter of weeks. Sure. And I think there's also just a different tone, right? Uh, yep. I was noticing that last night when we were talking about the kind of the memorials for, I believe, passing 400,000 deaths in the country, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, yep. you know, and also just, you know, the mask wearing, the, um, you, you saw a lot of fist bumps and 
you know, forearm taps and things like that at the mm -hmm. inauguration today, as opposed to people, you know, hugging maskless and things like that. I'm not sure. I mean, I think you could ask the question whether it's kind of too late for some of that stuff and, and people's opinions and how they think about the virus might already be said after the, you know, what are we, nine, nine, 10 months into this already, but, you know, definitely a different tone coming from the Biden administration and all this as well. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot to be said for the example from the top um, and the permission maybe uh, that people may need to go ahead and start wearing the mask more or being more vocal about their, um, you know, about their support of it. You know, if the person at the top is, you know, thinks it's a good idea, then there's, you know, the trickle down effect is, is psychological. And, um, you know, so, you know, we'll see if that has much of an effect. Texas is, uh, <laughs> is its own animal in that regard sometimes. Indeed. Yeah, this is also a place where we may see some pushback from Texas conservatives, um, even in the form of lawsuits. This is one thing that was floated to me in conversations with sort of conservative litigators in the state. Um, if the Biden administration takes up any kind of national mask mandate, I believe the you know latest plans we understand are some kind of like narrowly targeted mandate um, covering federal property and interstate travel. But anything like that, certainly any kind of vaccine mandate, which I don't think we've seen announced at all or, or even really discussed, but these are absolutely the types of things that um, conservative lawyers in Texas are going to want to sink their teeth into if, if they do come out of the new White House. And the vac a vaccine mandate is, is uh, it's, I'm really glad you brought that up because there's a lot of, um, a lot of chatter about that on the, on the internet. And, and for those who don't understand, I'm pretty sure those here on this panel uh, or on this cast today do know this already, but just for, for everybody else, um, uh, uh, an emergency use authorization can't is can't be mandated. It's um, and so um, and so whoever's worried about that can rest easy for a while because until it gets full approval, um, they they're not going to mandate an EUA. Um, so um, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things that I have had to tell people <laughs> that I wouldn't have remembered. Right now it's the opposite, right? Everyone wants a dose and they're just aren't enough. So yeah, boy, that's has could not be more true. All right, well, we will get into the local, uh, more Texas-centric uh, aspect of what's going on with the coronavirus in a minute. But first, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Texas 2036. Texas 2036's 2021 legislative agenda focuses on six critical policy areas linked to Texas's success. Learn more at texas2036.org agenda. Okay, so as it may be a new day in terms of who's leading the federal response to the coronavirus, not much is changing as of yet in terms of what's happening on the ground in Texas. Hospitalizations, I'm looking at our coronavirus tracker right now, the average number of hospitalizations down slightly from a week ago, but still near the highest peaks, uh, just under 14,000 people in Texas hospitals right now with the coronavirus. And if you look at our, our map of Texas and the hospital capacity, um, it is a, is a bleak looking map with a lot of regions in the state at or near kind of the levels that Greg Abbott had set 
for um, needing kind of further restrictive action. And in particular, Laredo, where uh, almost half of the hospital beds in the Laredo region are currently being occupied by COVID-19 patients. I mean, I think it is clear that, you know, we have vaccines coming, but we are still in, in a dangerous place with the coronavirus in Texas. Karen, what's the latest on what you've been seeing around the state? Um, the 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 very small you know glimmer of hope there is that for the first time in a while we're we're seeing a decrease you know but it's very small um, it does track with what say Travis County here where we are is uh, or I am anyway is seeing they reported a slight flattening but still way above um, you know where we were at the height of the pandemic so four days ago you know the department of state health services was warning that we, it was the worst in texas that it's ever been so um despite the uh, the slightly better numbers that's just one that's just one day and uh and we're, we got a long way to go on that um so uh yeah I, I think uh i think if there's a little bit of hope to be found it's that for the first time in a long time it didn't increase today which is um you know small uh you know Small comfort, I guess, but we can take it where you can get it. Sure. And, and we'll see whether that's a sign of a trend or just kind of one of those blips that we see. Exactly know. right. Exactly right. You know, one thing we do know is that, um, you know, Governor Abbott said, I believe yesterday, right, Karen, that 1.7 million doses of vaccine had been administered in Texas so far. And I'm actually going to stop here before I get to the question I was getting to, which is, what do we mean by administered there? Yeah. Yeah, I can explain that for you because it does confuse some people who aren't staring at these numbers every day. So here's the, the, the quick definition in the order of which they happen. Allocated means that the number of doses from the federal government uh, given to the various providers. If you've been allocated a number, that's how many you're gonna get or have gotten approved for use. Shipped means it's on its way. Um, administered means, uh, um, I mean, delivered means that it's landed at your provider and administered means it's gotten into your arm. So when you hear doses administered, that means shots in arms. So as of today, yes, well, and now and today with the most recent updated numbers just a little while ago, it's 1.2 million vaccinated with at least one dose. So that's mm -hmm. 1.2 million people who have had at least one and then another 185,000 uh, got their second dose. Um, so uh, total doses administered, including some people who got theirs twice uh, is almost 1.5 million. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So was, was the 1.7 million then, was that delivered? Uh, the 1.7 million was doses shipped gotcha. or, or delivered, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Delivered. That was according to the, uh, to the governor. Correct. So is there any sign, I mean, have, have we heard at all about like how many we need to see delivered before we start seeing, you know, public health benefits, obviously every person who gets it you know, gets the benefit of having the vaccine, but in terms of, you know, possibly slowing the spread or, or, or reducing the hospitalizations, uh, is, is there any kind of a number we're aiming for to start seeing impact there? Well, to start seeing impact there, that's a, that's a moving target. And I wish I had an answer for you there, but we're actually kind of trying to nail people down on that. The best number we have so far is that 70 to 80% uh, fully vaccinated to protect everybody else. Um, there's a percentage of people who can't get it, um, you know, just can't get it, not, not access to it, but shouldn't have it, you know, 
Um, and then there's a percentage of people that, uh, that may not uh, want it, but if they get to 70, 80%, that's herd immunity. Now, now when it starts to have an effect and decrease the spread, you know, or decrease the hospitalizations uh, and decrease the infections from it, um, it, it that's, a, that's a, a number we haven't been able to get to yet. It's, it's out there. <laughs> uh, one of the things that Abbott has been pushing a lot has been the, uh, the uh, monoclonal antibody treatments, uh, the Regeneron and, and some of the others, that if, you, if they're prescribed early enough in the, uh, in the diagnosis, they can keep you out of the hospital. Um, so he's been hammering that awareness is starting to get out on that. Um, there's some discussion about that, but combined with the vaccine in the early days, those two, um, are thought to be, ha should have some, some immediate effect. And of course, but, like one of the challenges that you have written about is, is that some of the data has, has not necessarily been up to date or, or has been a bit of a challenge for, for folks. Can you explain a little bit about what's going on there? Sure. So, so the state um, kind of co-opted their immune registry system, which is usually used for childhood immunizations and, and adult immunizations if they, if they consent. It's called MTRAC2. Um, and because of, and I won't go into too much of the weeds here, but because of the way it was set up so that people don't automatically go in, they have to opt in, which is unusual. It's one of the few systems like that in the country. But because of the way it's set up like that, the COVID vaccines aren't easily swept into the system, you know, on a 24 hour basis. The other ones are, are, uh, are you know, they have to be manually entered in or there has to be a system already in place, which some of the higher dollar uh, or higher, uh, more larger facilities with more resources have those things, but most of the smaller providers just don't. So they're manually entering this stuff. The, uh, the data gets delayed. There are, you know, massive opportunities for user error uh, in uploading the, 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 the reports, you know, the shot reports, which they have to report because we're in a disaster. Um, they have to send those shots to the state. There's no opting out of that. Um, so, you know, the state's looking at, you know, it's official immunity, uh, immune registry and it's official uh, shot records and, and vaccination rates. And they're a couple of days behind and they're incomplete. And there's providers who said they entered their shots and administered and they weren't showing up in the system. And they're trying to fix it. You know, they're coming up with various solutions that Texans can use. You know, the, Dep the Division of Emergency Management has a map showing you, you know, fairly up to the minute um, updates on where shots are available. Um, of course, that's, you know, all of this is going to get a lot easier when there's a lot more vaccine available. You know, um, if, you know, if pharmacy ABC has, says it has 20 shots on its map and you call 20 minutes later, it probably doesn't have any by then. So, uh, because you've got, you know, eight or 9 million people vying for 2 million doses. So. Um, yeah, but that, that was something yeah. I wanted to ask about is that, I, I mean, you hear from people about the, the confusion over the data. You, you hear about, um, you know, there was some confusion early on in the process when they opened it up to the 1B group, right? The, the mm -hmm. um, vulnerable folks, the people over, over a certain age, over 65, um, and, and then may have given some people the impression that there were more vaccines available than there actually were. Um, so there's definitely been some frustrations in how this is rolled out, but, you know, we have heard some, some kind of optimistic uh, descriptions of how this is going from Abbott at least in terms of, you know, getting the shots that the state is receiving 
out to people as quickly as possible. And, you know, to the extent that there are frustrations from the general public about not being able to get shots, it's in large part because just the supply is fairly low right now. Is, is that an accurate description, would you say, of the situation right now? Is I that think that's their biggest challenge, yes. I would say that. I would say that most, I'd say that's their biggest challenge is supply. I mean, regardless, they, they could be the most smooth rollout in, in the entire nation, which they're not, they're not the worst. You know, frankly, Texas is kind of in the 30 or 40th percentile if we're going to rank them in terms of getting shots out. Mm -hmm. But, um, but, you know, the sheer math is just, you know, you've got 8 million people who qualify for 1B you've got, you know, which is the, you know, the, the over 65 and the pre-existing conditions. And then you've got, you know, 1.9 million who qualify in 1A, which is the frontline workers in the healthcare. And you've got some overlap, but they're not all overlapping. So you're realistic. You're looking at nine and a half million people who are eligible for doses that of I mean, two and a half million have been shipped here. Um, and so you could have the most smooth rollout in the world, but if the doses aren't there, they're not there. And, and it's certainly understanding our people are, are, are confused um, and scared and desperate because they've more and more people are dying every day. You know, it's creeping in, it's getting closer. Our schools are starting to, you know, see more, you know, infections and our, the kids are, are, are starting to get infected at a higher rate and people's, you know, grandparents and, and aunts and uncles are, are, are dying every day. And it's just the rates getting faster. So the desperation is completely understandable. Um, and the sad truth is that there's just not enough for everybody to go around yet. Um, they do expect that to start changing soon. You know, you can start seeing th 300, 300 to 350,000 doses a week being sent to, to, uh, to Texas um, for the next few weeks. And then that's going to jump up uh, as soon as the federal government gets it. This is, you know, it's um, as much of a crystal ball as I can look into here at this point, but it's going to expected to jump up when the federal government gets involved in the manufacturing and the distribution. Um, you know, it's going to jump up whenever you get AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson getting their emergency use approval, uh, emergency use approval from the FDA, which they're looking at that happening perhaps next month. Um, and, uh, and as we all know from Moderna and Pfizer, the moment it gets the EUA approval, bam, it's on the planes, you know, there's no waiting around once they do that. Um, so, um, so this all could change really quickly. And, and the one last thing, if I'm not rambling too much, but the one last thing that, that, that can re is really going to start moving this along too, um, supply is, uh, you know, if the supply gets bigger, um, but also the, the, them turning towards the larger hubs, you know, they've, they've come up with a couple dozen large hubs that are capable of vaccinating a hundred thousand people a week. And then they've just released another 50, you know, 50 ish. I don't have the right exact number since they went from 28 to 78. So 30, 50, <laughs> math, 50, um, smaller hubs that can do, you know, 400 a week, but they're in places like the big bend and, you know, in some of the rural areas where they don't need hundred thousand, you know, they don't have a hundred thousand people out there. Um, but they're not getting nothing, you know? So, um, so, and, 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 and if you can get these large vaccination hubs who can stop using, you know, who can use their staff for vaccines instead of data entry, because they've got the data worked out, they're, uh, they're trying to, they're figuring out ways to go mobile, you know, um, they really, uh, uh, they expect everything to start moving faster on that front too. So, um, so they're, they're attacking it from all angles. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of changes in what things look like in the next month or so. 
um, based on both what the federal government's going to do and what's happening in, in science. Sure. Uh, before we go, Alex, I want to go briefly to you as you were tracking a bit of a COVID scare at the Texas Capitol last week where um, a, a member, Joe Deshotel, uh, learned he had tested positive right after they kind of wrapped up for their first week of business. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so we had a, a Democrat, sorry, from the Texas House, uh, as you mentioned, Joe Deshotel, who tested positive, I believe it was last Thursday, and he had been on the House floor, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday before figuring out Thursday afternoon that he tested positive for the virus. Um, in the House, it's not required for members to be tested before they get on the floor. So Dutch Hotel hadn't been, uh, the last time he had been tested was Monday, so he doesn't know how he contracted the virus. Um, of course, that's a little bit different than the Texas Senate rules where senators have to be tested. Uh, they have to test negative before um they go on the House floor. So a few members who had interacted with Deshotel um, quarantined. And again, I, I think he's still quarantining in Beaumont, which is where his district is. Um, but yeah, he uh, tested positive for the virus. And I think now, uh, uh, you know, the politics team, myself included, kind of looking into what does this mean for the session? Um, of course, this is the first session where they've had to govern with the threat of this, you know, virus hanging over everyone. So. I don't know if this will spur some sort of rule change in the House or the Senate or how the chambers interact with each other, but we're uh, keeping an eye out on that now. All right. Well, I'm sure we will be hearing more about this in the future. Uh, that does it for us this week, though. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Texas A&M University and the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, Raise Your Hand Texas and Texas, 20, 20, Texas 2036. Um, thank you to Emma, Karen, and Alex, our producers, Todd and Justin. Um, I am Matthew, and we will see you next week.